Good morning, Fairhill Church. Good morning. <laughs> Good morning. Uh, so, uh, where to start? All right. I feel, I feel like I haven't seen you in a while, but I have. Um, let's pray. Let's pray. Father, it is a joy to worship you. It's a, it's a joy to know that, that we possess Christ, that he is ours and, and we are yours, and that we, we know where we're going. We know what every trial will bring. We know that, that we will be with you and that we will be with you in glory. And so, Father, as we look at uh, this text this morning, we ask that you would work in us. Would you reveal things by the Spirit? Would you uh, captivate our hearts with the beauty of Christ and of your personal love for us and of the way that you work? Father, would you bless this time? We pray in Christ's name. Amen. All right, so... For those of you who have been paying attention, uh, we are supposed to have started our special, our new series uh, on relationships and on friendship this morning. But um, as many of you know, uh, Pastor Better's senior has been, has taken ill. Uh, he was supposed to have a uh, brain surgery and uh, he had that brain surgery, but there are some complications. And so um, with Chuck uh, kind of seeing and looking after his father, uh, we're kind of delaying some things. So this week is just going to be a once-off, and we'll start uh, that series a couple weeks from now. Um, next week will be special Mother's Day-centered sermon, so uh, look forward to that. But just so you know what, where things have kind of lined up. All right? All right, so uh, today, today we are looking at uh, one of the odd miracles of Jesus. One of the weird miracles of Jesus. We're looking at the story of the coin and the fish. Also known as the story of the temple tax. And as we look at this story, uh, I hope that we can uh, kind of embrace its oddity and its, its kind of weirdness, but also see kind of the, the deeper, profound message that is latent in this story. And I want us to, to look at this as a, kind of a chance to get a, maybe a, a new spin on the gospel, to see it from another perspective that we might... Uh, see it for what it's worth. Uh, it's always helpful to look at the gospel in different lights. Uh, but I also hope that we might see the unexpected nature of Christ and his working. That he, he, does, he does things that we wouldn't expect. And he works in ways that we wouldn't imagine. And he's going to surprise us. And I hope that we, we're going to embrace that. That we're not just expecting Jesus to be this cookie-cutter Christ who who says exactly what we say, think he's going to say, or um, who's kind of boring, that he's, a, he's an exciting savior and that he's working in and behind the scenes in ways we might not expect. So today we're going to be looking at uh, Matthew 17, verses 24 through 27. Matthew 17, verses 24 through 27. All right. And as you turn there, uh, Matthew 17, verses 24 through 27. And here is God's word. When they came to Capernaum, the collectors of the two drachma tax went up to Peter and said, does your teacher not pay the tax? He said, yes. And when he came into the house, Jesus spoke to him first, saying, what do you think, Simon? 
From whom do kings of the earth take toll or tax? From their sons or from others? And he said, from others. And Jesus said to him, then the sons are free. However, not to give offense to them, go to the sea and cast a hook and take the first fish that comes up. And when you open its mouth, you'll find a shekel. Take that and give it to them for me and for yourself. All right. Uh, People love to reference this as like, oh, Jesus just does really goofy things all the time. Who, who believes this stuff? But I hope we'll see a, a much larger narrative here. So starting with verse 24. When they came to Capernaum, the collectors of the two drachma tax went up to Peter and said, does your teacher not pay the tax? All right, so they, they're traveling around, actually traveling towards Jerusalem, towards Christ's death. And some of the tax, a tax collector comes, not to Jesus, but to Peter. And, uh, and is seeking the taxes. Now the first question is, what is this tax? What is this tax? And because it's called the two drachma tax, that's actually helpful. It's pointing back to an ancient tax that went all the way back to the time of Exodus. All the way back to the time of Exodus. And we're actually look at, at that passage. So let's look at Exodus 30. Exodus 30. I'm making you flip all the way around. Put a finger in the other one though, because we'll be back. Exodus 30, we're looking at verses 11 through 16. Exodus 30, verses 11 through 16. Waiting for the flipping to stop, and... Alright. The Lord said to Moses, When you take the census of the people of Israel, then each shall give a ransom for his life to the Lord when you number them a ransom for his life, that there is no plague among them when you number them. Each one who is numbered in the census shall give this, half a shekel according to the shekel of the sanctuary, half a shekel, which is an offering to the Lord. Everyone who is numbered in the census from 20 years old and upward shall give the Lord's offering. The rich shall not give more. The poor shall not give less than the half shekel when you give the Lord's offering to make atonement for your lives. You shall take the atonement money from the people of Israel and give it to the service of the tent of meeting that it may bring the people of Israel to remembrance before the Lord as to make atonement for your lives. All right, so what is this tax? This is not just a, a, a mere the kind of boring little tax. This is an, an atonement. It is a ransom. You actually have to have to buy your life back. That in their sin, they, uh, they are dead. And so this is, a, this is a tax that actually reminds them that, that God has atoned for them, that God has saved them, and that they owe their life to God. That they have been bought with a price they have been atoned for. And it's actually a reflection of the fact that they need to continue to be atoned for, to be ransomed that their life may be kept in God. It's a very deep, profound tax here. Right? This is not like our taxes. This is, a, this is a big deal. And I want you to keep that in mind because if that's going to kind of keep the whole passage together so that there is a greater, deeper meaning. Right? And this tax is supposed to go to the temple, the tent of meeting, which then becomes the tabernacle, which then becomes uh, the temple. So these are Jewish people coming to Jesus 
on behalf of kind of the religious system, asking for this atonement sacrifice, this tax. Now look at the tone with which these people come to Peter. What, does your teacher not pay the tax? There's a tone in that statement. There's a little snarkiness to it. Because you know that they, they work for the religious leaders, and Jesus has not been a, good, a big fan of the religious leaders. He wipes out the temple. He, he rebukes them every chance he gets. And so these tax collectors probably have a certain notion and a certain expectation of Jesus. They've been told that this guy, he, he runs around acting like he owns the place. He's superior. He's probably going to give you a hard time about the tax. So you need to be careful with this Jesus guy. Jesus has a reputation as, as a rebel, causing mischief. And honestly, that's not a good thing. Especially for these tax collectors. They, they're not the religious system. They're just doing their job. And they've kind of been given this deceptive view of Christ. One that, that is going to keep them actually from seeing who Jesus really is. So Peter, he hears this and he can tell it in their tone. And so he immediately, oh, yes, yes, we can do that. My, my teacher does pay the tax, verse 25. He said yes. But the problem is that he goes to Jesus and Jesus has a problem with paying the tax. Now look at this. When he came into the house, Jesus spoke to him first, saying, What do you think, Simon? For whom do kings of the earth take toll or tax? From their sons or from others? Now just notice that there are ways that Jesus could phrase this. And he presents it as a question to Simon. He doesn't, uh, he was relating to him on a personal level. Uh, it's a sidebar and, and not, not the main point, but Jesus is, is like personal and engaging. He meets people and he, he doesn't just tell them things. He wants things to come from them so that it's the product of, of their understanding, their heart. That's important. And maybe something that uh, we could learn from Jesus. After all, he, he just, this is the all-knowing, the Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of the universe, and he's asking this guy, well, what, what do you think? And he's shaping Peter so that he thinks as he should. All right. So he's presenting the problem. What do you think, Simon? From whom do kings of the earth take toll or tax? From their sons or from others? And Peter, he reflects on it and he says, well, well from others. And Jesus said to him, then the sons are free. So kings... Kings do not tax their kids. Because that just doesn't make sense. All right, what is this like? This is like giving your kids an allowance and then making them pay rent. <laughs> right? Like, here's $5. Like, now give that back to me so that you can have food. Like, it's silly. It's silly. It's, it's all the same money. The same concept is when, when Casey and I make bets. It's like, uh, I bet you, I know, I bet you a million dollars. That's not true. And I'm sure I owe Casey like $3 million. Um, and she can go into our joint bank account and get that $3 million as soon as it shows up. Uh, <laughs> as soon as she makes $3 million. And, uh, but that, that's what we're dealing with here. 
So it, it's silly. You don't tax your kids. The king doesn't tax the princes. And so there's actually a really deep meaning here. And Jesus has a very deep kind of philosophical reason for you. He shouldn't have to pay because he is the son of God. And the Lord of this temple is not the religious leaders. It's God. This is God's temple. Everything belongs to God. And so he shouldn't have to pay. And for him to pay actually undermines the fact that he is divine and that he is the son of God. And he's, he's showing this to Simon. He's teaching him. He is the son and the son is free. And it also doesn't make sense because what is this? This isn't an, an atonement. This is a ransom. Jesus doesn't need to be atoned for. He doesn't need a ransom. He's, he is the ransom. All right, so it doesn't make any sense. And Peter sees that dilemma. And so we, we get kind of, Jesus is in a pickle here. On the one hand, uh, he, can't, he can't pay this tax. If he does, it, it undermines his divinity and it, it actually obscures the fact that, that he is the son of God. It'd be kind of a false witness to these tax collectors and go against uh, everything that, that he is, his very nature. But he also can't just show up to these guys and be like, well, no, I, I'm not going to pay this because I'm God. Uh, this gets a messy business. All right. And, and he says later, it's, it's offensive. It's just going to cause offense. And what are these guys supposed to do? They're, they're normal Joe Schmoes who like just, we, we need to get the tax. You can't claim that you're God. It's very messy. And we have Peter. And Peter, Peter said yes. Does he make a liar of his disciple? Like, what happens here? All right, this is Jesus caught in a predicament. Um, and Jesus thinks of a way to, to kill, like, all five birds with one stone. He figures it out. And I like this about Jesus. We see the wisdom here of Jesus, the, the creativity of him. Now, we often aren't like that. We kind of face these kind of dilemmas and we feel really caught in the middle. And we think there, there are two options. When I kind of need to decide, do I do what is, what is right and hard or do I do what is easy and maybe wrong? On the one hand, maybe we just, uh, we kind of justify it. And we're like, well, what does it really matter? Like, so these people are saying things that I disagree with or... Maybe I shouldn't do this, but the whole group is doing it. Um, and we compromise. We kind of just go with the flow and say, well, eh, it doesn't really matter. And we end up hurting our testimony. We actually go against who we are as believers. Um, even larger than that, we kind of just go against uh, our natural inclinations, our, our conscience. All right, so that's one way we tend to deal with it. Or, or we like stick with our guns and we're true to our convictions, but we're incredibly offensive. And it's kind of like, well, I'm going to do what I want to do, and you're not going to get it, and you're not going to like it, but I'm going to do it. And we, we are true to who we are, but we paint a picture of, of Christianity that is very offensive, that is confusing, that hurts our testimony the other way, that confirms that, that Christians are just kind of jerks. 
And we feel caught between these two things. And we kind of jump between one or the other. Now Jesus does not get caught in that, in that mess. Jesus always thinks of a third way. A third way that's better. That's surprising. And it's actually really beautiful how he does it. Like, and he accomplishes actually more than either of those two things would have done. And, and above and, and beyond those things. And so, what is his plan? What is his plan to, to eat his cake and to, to get his cake and eat it too? Um, let's see. Uh, verse 27. So he says, he says, Then the sons are free. However, not to give offense to them, go to the sea and cast a hook and take the first fish that comes up. And when you open its mouth, you will find a shekel. Take that and give it to them for me and for yourself. Now, how is this the perfect response? The perfect response. First of all, it confirms Jesus' identity as the Son of God. So if Jesus pays this tax on his own, then, then he isn't acting as a son. But there's another way out. He can pay it, but not, he doesn't have to pay it. He gets his dad to pay it. If his dad pays it, then it's like, well, the, yeah, the, the king has got me covered. He'll pay. And that's what he does. He kind of uses his dad's credit card. He uses the company card and, and gets it from creation itself. That dad is going to give it to me and he's going to deliver it through a fish. He's the son of God. All things are are centered around Christ. That all of creation is for him and, and created through him and by him. He is the son of God and it's, it's expressed in a, in a different way. So he proves that he is the son of God. But what else else does he do? He actually, it's a testimony to these tax collectors. So he doesn't just tell them he is God. He shows them he is God. Can you imagine Jesus telling this to these people? Like, oh, okay, go, go, get a, go get a coin from the fish. And then they show up and he has a coin. He doesn't offend the tax collectors. Instead, he, he witnesses to them. He shows them that he is the Christ, that he is the Son of God. So that they're not offended. They're, they're awestruck. They're left worshiping. They're confirmed by the power of God's word that, that he is the Son of God. And that, that's, that's pretty cool. All right, he, he proves his sonship. He, he gives a testimony to people. And he also gives, a, gives Peter a reason for faith. He gives Peter a reason for faith. Now remember, this is, this is Peter. He's, he's a fisherman. And the story centers around uh, Peter in a lot of ways. Peter kind of got Jesus into this mess. Uh, the discussion is to help bring Peter along. And now Peter is part of the solution. So he gets Peter, the fisherman, to do what he does best. He, he sends him out to catch a fish. He sends him to catch a fish. And oddly enough, so much of Jesus' interaction with Peter is, is fish related. So the miracle that, that confirms him as the Christ at first is that Jesus tells him where to cast his net and he catches a bunch of fish. He calls Peter the, the fisher of men. When he meets him again, he, 
he tells them to, to do that same miracle. He kind of does it again, and, and Peter, uh, his eyes are open to see that this is the Christ resurrected. He eats fish with Jesus, uh, kind of sits on the, by the fire. It, it's all fish-related. And so this is another time where Jesus meets Peter right where he is. And can we imagine Peter sitting there, sitting there fishing, feeling kind of silly, casting his line, and wondering, like, is there really going to be a, a coin in this fish's mouth? He's caught plenty of fish in his lifetime, and I'm sure none of the other ones had money in them. But this one, this one's supposed to, be, supposed to have money. And he catches that fish, and you can imagine his, his like, kind of like nervous excitement, like, is it going to be there? And he looks in the mouth, and, and there's that, that glint of silver, and it was true. Jesus did it. And you can, you can reason that every time he went fishing after that, he had to think of that. You know, like, <laughs> remember that time? Like, that, that was crazy. And he's a fisherman, so, like, he has this constant reminder, like, yeah, I'm pretty sure Jesus is God. Like, he's, he's the son And that's like such a personal, beautiful interaction between the God of the universe and, and Peter the fisherman. That is a, a very personal God. And I'd ask you, like, is, is that the God that you believe in? A really personal God who meets you where you are? It makes me think of this story. Um, uh, so I was with this girl from Campus Crusade, and we were like walking through campus. And she sees this leaf, and it's red, and it's shaped like a heart. And she picks it up, and she goes, look, God wanted to show me his love, so he gave me this heart-shaped leaf. See, I didn't go, oh. I, I like rolled my eyes, like, uh, okay. <laughs> One of those. Um. <laughs> but, but I had to think about it. I thought about it more, and I was like, okay, like, does God love this girl? Like, Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. And does, like, does God want to communicate that? Like, of, of course he does. Did he communicate it? Like, yes. Could a personal sovereign God sovereignly ordain this little heart-shaped leaf to fall at the feet of this girl and she received it as a message of God's love? Like, I think cynical though, though I am, like I have to accept that like, yeah, God could do that. And like, uh, maybe he did. I don't think I would have received the message, but she did. And I think we believe in that kind of personal God. We do. Um, maybe we're too cynical for it. Maybe we're uncomfortable with that. But that is the God that we worship. We have no theological qualms with that. Um, so that is, that is how Jesus comes to, to Peter, to the fisherman. And he uses this coin to confirm his sonship. There's like a divine message in one of these, this kind of goofy, simple thing. He shows him the sonship of Jesus. Right. But I think there's a there's a deeper, kind of larger message here. This coin is meant to show not just the sonship of Jesus to Peter, but 
the sonship of, of Peter to Peter. That Peter is proven to be a, a son of God as well. So, hang in with there. Uh, hear me out. So notice that this, this one coin, it doesn't just cover Jesus. It covers Peter as well. It covers Peter as well. And when Jesus says, he doesn't say the son is free. He says the sons are free. The sons are free. And so when this coin comes, it's not just Jesus who is being treated like a son, the son of God. It is Peter who's being treated like a son as well. He's paid for by the Father. And that's where if you put all the pieces together, it actually presents a, a pretty astounding message. So, God, because of Peter's association with Jesus, receives this atoning sacrifice. Now, I hope that sounds kind of familiar. That's the gospel. There's a gospel message latent in this goofy story about the fish and the coin. That if you're with Jesus, you're a son. And you're treated like a son. And God atones for your, your sin. God pays your way. That's what's happening in this story. And that's, that's the beautiful thing here. So there was this situation which, which could have gone south could have been offensive or could have undermined Christ. And instead, it confirms all of those things and it ends up preaching the gospel to Peter himself. Now that is, that is a beautiful thing. That is the God that we worship. That is, uh, that is amazing. And that's where we believe that there is always a, th a third way. There is a third way that is better and more glorious than the things that we would ever imagine. We would not have imagined the fish, the fish coin thing happening. We can't anticipate how God is going to redeem these situations. And the thing is that that coin, that coin represents kind of the third way, the better way of God. And it points forward to, to the ultimate better way, the ultimate third way, the cross of Jesus Christ. That is the, the third way. That is God working miraculously to atone for his people. Because there are, there are two ways that God could have treated us. He could have been the, the smiley grandpa of a God. The good old God who just, just kind of, oh, I, I know you sin, but, you know, like, don't worry about it. And we, would, we like that God. We like the concept of him. But the thing is, that God is not God. That God is spineless. That God is unjust. That God is silly. And maybe we like that God, but he's not worthy of worship. Or you have, you have the God who is totally just and totally holy and just destroys all of us. Who holds everything against us. Who has no grace, but but he's just and holy. Now, people don't like that God. And no one should like that God because no one gets to worship that God. Everyone gets destroyed by that God. That God doesn't have any followers. Everyone is an enemy. And so God 
God created a third way in Jesus Christ. That, no, Jesus would be the atoning sacrifice. Jesus would be the ransom. He would pay. He would be destroyed and we would receive grace. That's right. I want us to see that that there is always the third way. That there's a way where, where death leads to life, where sacrifice uh, actually kind of ends up redeeming all things. Now what do we take from this? What do we take from this? Uh, two main things. The first is how we think about God. If, if we're looking at our lives and we're seeing kind of the two options, maybe we see that the good, what I would like, what, what seems to be best, and I'm seeing this, this, these terrible things, this terrible stuff happening, we have to trust that there is a third way. That maybe, maybe we can't see the whole thing. Maybe there's going to be a coin and fish happening. Maybe there's going to be a resurrection. Maybe there's going to be a cross. And we need to trust that, that God actually will do this third thing that is going to be more glorious and more amazing. We need to humble ourselves and recognize that we wouldn't have thought of the cross. We wouldn't have thought of the coin. God is doing more than we can ask or imagine. And we need to live as children who trust that. Children who trust that, that we are free, that we ought to have a God who has said he is loving and good. We, have, we don't have a God who says exactly how he's going to work. And we have to trust him. We have to trust him to do that third way, which he has done countless times. That's how we receive our God. Great humility. All right, so that's the God side of it. And then there's the us side of it. How do we respond to this? I think we can't leave the sermon unless we, we say that we have to pursue the third way. That we're going to be caught in situations, we're going to be between a rock and a hard place and think that, no, we, I need to compromise my identity as a Christian or, or I just need to be this staunch, scary guy. Like, no, no, there, there probably is a third way. There always is a third way. There's the gospel way of doing things. And we are called to pursue that. Now, we're not going to immediately see it because it's probably going to involve sacrifice. It's kind of probably going to involve death. But uh, a greater glory and greater good to come. But there's always a third way. We think of, we think of the, okay, I can, be, I can be weak and failing all the time. Or I can be strong and prideful. No, we are called to be weak so that we may be strong in Christ. Or, uh, let's say another example here. Uh, so we have the option of being kind of rule-bound, angry legalists. Or we can be like, go with the flow, do whatever you want, license, and just sinning all the time. Or we can be people who actually want to be free from sin and love our freedom from sin. That we pursue righteousness for the sake of the joy that we have. There's always a third way. And it's going to be better. 
And it's going to protect us from being these kind of goofy, cookie-cutter, just-what-people-expect kind of Christians. And that's where we want, to, we want to evidence Jesus Christ. We want to be like Jesus. And we want to pursue this third way. So I challenge you that talk about these things. Try to figure out the third way with someone. Pursue those things. And, and in so doing, honor Christ and reflect him and, and you'll be living uh, according to the gospel, which is a beautiful thing. Let's pray. Father, we are humbled by your wisdom and your grace in the way that you work. And we thank you for Jesus. Uh, we like him. We enjoy him. He, he surprises us in a good way. And Father, I ask that you would help us to, to worship and honor Jesus. To pursue the third way. The way of grace and sacrifice and death leading to a resurrection. But most of all, Father, I ask that you would give us a love for Jesus. A love for who Jesus is, what he did when he came. And, and Father, that we would anticipate his coming again with great joy and expectation. We pray this in his name. Amen.